0: God is always, always taking care of us. Amen. You know, this song came out a couple of, I would say about a year ago or so, roughly, maybe. Or within this year, yeah. More? Wow. Well, God brings it when he needs to bring it. Amen. When he thinks that our lives are ready for it, he brings it. And boy, does he bring it. You know, I read this through and I thought, man, do I really, really want you to take me wherever, whenever? I said, well, Lord, I know I can't trust in my own wisdom because I ain't gotten that. But God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. And God will take us into some weird locations. Sometimes all the way out to Philadelphia. Sometimes down to Boyle Heights. Sometimes into uh, Norwalk High. Although, why would you want to go there? No. (laughs) I'm kidding. You know, and sometimes God takes us to places where we need to learn Hebrew. And study it. And really grill it into our brains. Why we would ever need to learn Hebrew God knows, although I know that uh, God's illuminated me from time to time. And I remember pulling up a song and saying, wow, that song is so cool. It sounds so great. It just speaks to my heart. And I remember there was a portion in it, and uh, it was written by a Christian Hebrew or Christian Jew. And he worshiped in his song in his language. And we had the privilege of having a, a gentleman come in and uh, who knew Hebrew, who was Jewish. And I ran up to him and said, sir, can you verify this for me? And he read it out and I said, wow, it sounds so much prettier in Hebrew. So, without any further ado, I praise God because amongst us is a very uh, distinguished uh, Speaker of Hebrew. (laughs) It's so funny. Uh, One of his daughters came up to my daughter and said, or I think it was my daughter, and said, my daddy, he got an A in Hebrew. (laughs) But you know, it's difficult. And God is good. And I know late nights studying, going through these exams, going through these tests, into the word, yes. But man... You know, it's true what David said. I am not going to offer anything up to my God that didn't cost me anything. And I know where this man is now, it has costed him. But I praise his name because he came from a long, long ways from sitting sitting in a uh, small group Looking at each other, saying, I don't know about these people. <laughs> to coming up today and opening up God's Word and ministering to each of our hearts, our lives, and our families. Without further ado, Brother Rob.
1: I don't know if that clapping is going to be uh, going on after we're done. I'm I'm preaching from Ezra, so try to stay awake. In uh, full disclosure, I got an A minus. Thank you. Yeah. So thanks a lot. Um, It's a pleasure to speak before you. Uh, It's a privilege and an honor to divide the word of God and, and teach it. So um, I understand that and I understand that this is a privilege and um, I take it very seriously to just be up here to be able to talk about the things of the Lord. And we're going to look at the book of Ezra today. We're going to look specifically at Ezra 710. So before we get started, I'll give just a brief uh, background. Many of you know me. Some of you don't. Um, My name is Rob Kimsey. For those of you that don't know me, I was raised as a Catholic. I spent the majority of my youth without a relationship with with God. When I was 24, my dad passed away. It hardened my heart and I lived the majority of my adult life as an atheist. I got saved here in this church. It'll be five years this May on Mother's Day that I got baptized and once I got saved, um, I'm on the spot. The spot. Turn, you can turn that down. Um, so I now serve as an usher. Um, I'm the deacon of the Care Commission. I started a prayer table that we do. It'll be two years in April that we've been doing the prayer table. I help Vet and Ron with uh, Boyle Heights. So God took an atheist and turned him into a believer. And I'm serving. Uh, I got convicted that I needed to know what the Bible said from front to back. So now I'm attending seminary. I go to the Master's Seminary, uh, John MacArthur's uh, campus at Grace Community Church. So that is me. That's where I'm at, and that's how I came to uh, have the desire to preach. So. Let's just uh, take a brief second to pray. I want to just think about the, we were all celebrating last night or you were sleeping in, um, enjoying. I think someone had posted on Facebook that they were snuggling in their blankets while I stayed up till midnight with my children. But there was an attack you have probably seen on the news in Istanbul, in Turkey. I checked the news this morning. The latest uh, update was 39 people were murdered. Up to 70 people injured. So, as we're celebrating the New Year, um, I don't care if it's in the United States or in another nation, there's people that got killed last night. And unfortunately, not all of those, some of those people may have been believers, some of them may not have been. So, that means that out of that group, some of them are going to be in hell for the rest of their lives because they didn't hear the message or they didn't accept Christ in their life. So, that's a very somber thing that we should reflect on. I'll just open in prayer and then we can get straight into the the message for today. God, we're here today to worship you. This preaching is an act of worship. God, you came to earth and you submitted yourself. You condescended to our level as the creator of the universe and And our creaturely status, you condescended to us. You explained who you are through the person of Jesus Christ. You explained salvation and how we can be reconciled to you, even though we are sinners and we live with a sinful nature inside of us. So, God, we want to acknowledge that, that you are the creator. God, please be with me as I as I teach this lesson from Ezra. I pray that anything that I say that's incorrect, that you'll, you'll deafen the ears of the listeners. Let them not hear it. I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we can all learn together, that you can soften our hearts and that we can apply the things we learn today to our daily lives um, so that it can affect a positive change in our lives and also a positive change in the people around us as they watch us and they see what we do. God, it's a great responsibility to be a, a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, so please let us take it seriously. And God, I pray for the difficult parts of the sermon, the historical background that you uh, give the audience a just a sharp attention, and let me uh, teach it in a way that is exciting, that we can learn from it. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. All right, so if you could open your Bibles to Ezra 710. Ezra 710. So... Before we get started, just think about why Ezra. It's an Old Testament book. Um, you're not going to necessarily find the gospel there. It's a it's a book. Uh, it's part of the post exilic texts in the Bible and the portion of the Old Testament. These are the the folks that went into captivity into Babylon. They spent a lot of time there, seventy years. They came back. They're building the uh, the the second temple. So. Uh, someone had asked, "Why Ezra? Why on earth would you want to preach Ezra?" And the, and the simple answer is because it's Scripture. All Word of God needs to be preached. There's a there's a lesson to draw from every single word in this book. Every letter, um, everything, has to be looked at. And and for a a a, a poignant reason, because if we think about Ezra. The post-exilic Jews that have gone into captivity and now they're returning to Jerusalem to build the temple for the second time. They have suffered persecution. They've been judged by God. They've seen their temple destroyed. And we'll get into some of the historical context. Not destroyed, annihilated, complete, complete desolation. Uh, But also with the prophecies that that they're aware of with Isaiah, Jeremiah, They've heard a promise of restoration. They've heard a promise of a Messiah to come that would bring peace on the world. That would be a rightful ruler. That would be a king of Israel. That in his name, all oppression would end. Justice would be on the earth. This immaculate person that's been promised to them, the Messiah. Now they've returned. They're living. There's believers around them. There's non-believers around them. They're living in a secular pagan world. They're waiting for the Messiah to show up. And then we think about what, where are we in contemporary times? We're believers. We're surrounded by unbelievers. We live in a secular pagan society. We're waiting for the Messiah to come. The, the post-exilic texts in the Bible are probably the most overlooked. They're the, probably the least preached. And I would argue they're probably the most poignant for having a, a core. What, what does it mean to us? We are these people. We live in this culture. We're waiting for Christ to return. They were waiting for Christ to show up. We're waiting for Christ to return. We're surrounded. It's the same thing. Our society, we are these people. So what was going on at this time? What did God want these people to do? What were they doing? What kind of pastors or priests were leading the people? And that's the person of Ezra. So I think it's an important text. The catalyst for this sermon was part of an assignment that I did for the master's seminary to teach or to uh, to do a 10 page sermon manuscript with the thought of ideally preaching it. And I didn't know at the time that I was doing the assignment that I would have the opportunity to preach. But that's the providence of God. I had prepared this whole thing. And then the pastor said, hey, you want to preach for me? I said, hey, what do you know? I got a, I got a sermon ready. So this is where we're at. So we'll just read the text. It's Ezra chapter seven. And like I said, we're going to go into the historical. We're going to do an introduction of the book so we can discover the historical background, the canonical context, as in where this book lies in scripture. We're going to look at the immediate context of the verse, and then we're going to draw some things from the verse that we can apply to our lives. There's going to be three main units of thought, and we'll get into that as we go. Um, Before we get started, if you didn't get a handout today, can you put your hand up and one of the ushers will come in and and hand you a a, a handout. Just hold your hand up. They're coming in. So we'll get straight into the verse but I'm going to just read a few a few verses uh, ahead of our verse and a few verses after our verse, just so we can quickly establish the immediate context. There's a lot of material. I don't know if we're going to get through it all for the sake of time. we, We may not be able to go to every scripture reference. Your handout is going to have supporting scripture for each of the units of thought, and it's going to have some application scripture, Lord willing. We're going to try to read every one of those, but we may have to sacrifice uh, due to the time restraints. So instead of going over this later, I'm going to go ahead and change it up and just do it now. So the the immediate context is going to be the the paragraphs or the 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 units of thought preceding and following the text that you're looking at. And oftentimes without a historical background or a canonical context, um, the immediate context of Scripture will determine a a, a lot of times the meaning so that you can't look at one verse and have a big misunderstanding. Well, what did the person just say or what's the person saying after? So in this point, we're going to just pick up with Ezra chapter seven, verse eight, and I'll read it. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon and on the first of the fifth month, He came to Jerusalem, and this is what I want you to to key in on, because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, this is the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe. Learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. And he goes on to talk about Ezra. What kind of person is Ezra? Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven. Perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. So the, the thing to pick up there is that he's going back to Jerusalem. And some things are happening because the good hand of his God was upon him. And then looking just really briefly at the lexical and syntactical study of the inspired Hebrew that 710 is written in. So depending upon what what you have, I have an NASB. This is the most literal translation from the inspired Hebrew and Greek. So you may have different things, but verse 10 says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Well, when I looked at this verse and translated it, where we see study to study, it's the word deros, and it means to seek, to seek after or more specifically to seek with care. So the way we would read it. it and before we go, so, so it says here, for Ezra had set his heart. The word, the word there they're using for for is key. And it can be, uh, translated as indeed or because. So, or for. It, it has to have something happen in front of it to have that word used. So, because the good hand of his God was upon him, indeed Ezra had set his heart to seek with care. The law of the Lord is more how that verse reads in the inspired Hebrew to study is is great. We need to learn what the word of God says, but to seek it with care is different than studying it. I would argue that has something to do with And that's what the verse is communicating his heart, not his mind. He's not looking to to learn something new. He's setting his heart to seek with care. After what the word of God says and not only that to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So Ezra is a is a role model for Christian Christian life for Christians all around the world. And so the three units of thought that we're going to get into today, we simply just take it right from the verse First, the need to learn the word of God. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord, the need to learn the word of God. Second, the importance of living out the word of God. He set his heart to practice it. Third, the obligation to share the word of God. He set his heart to teach his statutes, God's statutes and ordinances in Israel. So those are your units of thought and we'll be we'll be going into them. So if you didn't write it down fast enough, I got you covered. OK, so before we continue, uh, we we really need to stress context. So we're going to look very quickly. And this is where you got to try to stay. Stay with me, because this is this is a complicated material and it's kind of boring. There's a lot of dates. If if dates bore you or history bores you, then just think about about it, that it's the word of God and the word of God has the power to change. So it's not boring. It's important because you have to know the historical background. You have to know the, the, the canonical context. Where does that book, book fit in? How can we we then draw a relation to the New Testament? How does this relate to Christ? So we're going to just run through this. So for a, a quick introduction of the book of Ezra, we're going to look at author. So the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were one book in the earliest Hebrew, uh, Hebrew manuscripts. The historian, Origen, who lived A.D., he was 185 to 253, long time ago. He was the first writer known to have distinguished between the two books, and he actually called them Ezra 1 and Ezra 2. So although they were regarded as one volume, the Nehemiah 1-1 caption clearly indicates they were two separate compositions. So there's still some conjecture among scholars for definitive authorship. Most scholarship thinks that Ezra is the author. Uh, They put him as the author for actually first and second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. There's some there's some uh, problems with chronology and some other things, some dates. So it's, it's not definitive. Um. However, the majority of scholarship today have assumed the author or compiler of Ezra Nehemiah was also the author or chronicler of 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And the reason this viewpoint is uh, is asserted is that there's a commonality between both texts in style. Basically, the verses at the end of Chronicles and the beginning of Ezra are virtually identical. And both of the books have an affinity for lists. So if you read these books, you'll notice that they start with a genealogy and it's just deep and it's just a it's a list. So it's a narrative built into this list of names and list of dates. But in that narrative is where we're going to try to focus. But because there is all of this information and because it fits into where we have the major prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we have Daniel, we have the events of the Babylonian captivity. To ignore that content and just say we're just going to teach Ezra 710 is irresponsible. We, I have to go into it. Um, this is a challenging sermon to, to prepare. It's a challenging sermon to preach because you start listing dates and you start saying this BC and that BC. and um, it's Okay, so let's just continue and go through this as fast as we can. Okay, so that being said about the author, there are some striking differences. It's not all uniform. Um, There's no internal evidence for the author. So for these reasons, the name of the author cannot be known for certain. The date of writing the book of Ezra can be approximately dated 440 B.C., with the events being dated from 538 to 457. So written a little after the events described. Uh, Ezra chronicles the return of the Jews from exile in Babylonian captivity and also the rebuilding of the temple, as, as I've said. The people of Israel completed and dedicated the temple in 516 BC after being delayed for approximately 18 years from their enemies from the north. So they don't go back and it's just all rainbows and butterflies. They face opposition. And the, the building of the of the second temple shuts down, starts again, shuts down. So there's a process that happens. So a decree from Darius, king of Persia, in 520 BC allowed them to finish the construction of the temple. And Ezra taught the people the law of God and helped them to reform their spiritual life so that the nations around them would know that they were God's chosen people. And God draws in other nations based on um, Israel. So many people, the world, has all come to know God because of Israel. And we think about what's happening now in the United Nations, if you guys follow the news. Um, For the first time in the in the history of this country, we have uh, gone along with a a resolution that has stated that the Western Wall of the temple in Jerusalem is occupied Palestinian uh, territory. So we are going to see things in this year um, that really, when you look at eschatology, you'd have to you don't need to be a seminary student to look at it and say, wow, this is this is it. So we'll see what in God's providence he has planned for us this year. But we need to be in prayer about Israel, definitely. So looking real quick at the outline, I broke this this book up into three, three sections. The first sections being the first exiles returning to the land of Judah. It's basically going to be chapter one all the way up to the end of chapter two. Um, Cyrus, the king of Persia, issues a decree. The exiles return home. The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. The second division is the temple is rebuilt. It's going to be chapter 3 through the end of chapter 6. In this section, the altar is built under the leadership of Jeshua and Zerubbabel. And the people celebrate the Feast of Booths or the celebration of the tabernacles. We see the laying of the foundation. Um, Like I said, the work is stopped. Again, it's resumed. The temple is completed and Passover is celebrated. That's the second division of the book. Third would be Ezra's return and ministry. And this is where we're focused today with our verse in 458 to 457 B.C. We have the decree of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, the return of Ezra and the problem of mixed marriages. Uh, It's also there's a report given about uh, it's it's a concern with foreign wives. After 70 years of the captivity in Babylon, the Jews once again have a city. And their temple is rebuilt. Sacrifices have been started. So the title of the sermon. It points to the idea that Ezra wanted to live for God. And we should, too. We have the word of God. And even more than what Ezra had, we have the antecedent revelation of the Gospels. We have the New Testament. We have the Messiah. We have the person of Christ. So it's a conformity to the law of God. And it's not a conformity to being uh, intelligent or smart or I've learned this and I'm an, I can say I, I can memorize scripture. That's wonderful. And that's a part of us learning. But we have to look at what Ezra lives for us. This model that he, he, he sets his heart to study the law of the Lord, to seek with care after the law of the Lord. You can't you can't do something unless you know what to do, you can't, you can't follow directions unless you first read the directions. You can't follow instructions unless you read the instructions. So we're, we're talking about the post-exilic Jews and we're referring to the group of exiles who had been taken into the Babylonian captivity. When the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, sieged the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. That siege happened in a two and a half year period. It's five eighty eight B.C. to five eighty six B.C. So this isn't a guy that showed up and just knocked on the on the door and the door opened and he captured the city. This was a siege that lasted two years. Their store of food ran out. There was starvation. There was death. There was cannibalism. This is a complete annihilation and destruction. And there's an aftermath that happens. I'm going to read just real briefly an excerpt from a book. It's called Kingdom of Priests, a History of Old Testament Israel. It's by Eugene H. Merrill. And it deals with the realities of the siege's aftermath and kind of describes what what had happened. Uh, So starting excerpt. The aftermath, the major public buildings and the residences of Jerusalem were set afire and leveled to the ground by Babylonian troops commanded by Nebuchadnezzar They then reduced the great defensive walls to rubble so that the once magnificent city lay as a smoldering ruin, unable to protect the rabble who still resided there. The point is, is that this was complete annihilation. That's the end of the excerpt. So the city and the temple were burned, and this was the latter captivity of the Jews. Some had been taken earlier by Nebuchadnezzar when he conquered the city, but he didn't destroy the city. This was in Ezekiel's time. So if you remember the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar took all the best, the brightest, the young, the strong, the politicians, the people he considered to be worthy or powerful. Uh, He took them out. And then we have Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took as exiles the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had declared their allegiance to the king of Babylon and the rest of the population. You can find that in Second Kings 25.11. There, the internal evidence for the book of Ezra, and this is in, in scripture, where can we validate Ezra? Where else does it say? The internal evidence for uh, Ezra is in Isaiah 44.28 and 45.1 which names Cyrus, the king of Persia. Hundreds of years before the event, uh, Isaiah names this king, this person that's going to come, and he's going to do these wonderful things. And then we have the first uh, Ezra 1-1, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, this happens. So there is internal evidence for Ezra. Now the external evidence which is extra biblical evidence when we're talking about uh, archaeological, historical. uh, There's a historicity. There's an authentic part of history that cannot be argued. And the external evidence is the Persian kings named in Ezra. Uh, Darius. Darius has an inscription on Mount Behestan in Iran. And Artaxerxes has a palace. uh, His ruins are Persopolis in Iran. These are physical places. There's inscriptions of these guys. There's there's uh, clay tablets. There's there's a uh, not monoliths, but there's uh, statutes. There's all kinds of there's a historical reality. Darius was there was actually two of them. Darius one and two. There was an Artaxerxes. There was an Artaxerxes one and two based on chronology and some issues in the timeline. There's conjecture about which king was which because you have some contradictions in the text. But. These are real people. They existed in history. It's not a debate. It's that's reality. So it's not a matter of whether it happened or not. It happened. Do you believe that God is behind it all? There's an orchestrator behind these historical events and it's God. So that's where we want to place our, our focus that this is reality. This is not fiction. This is real. So the canonical context You have that information in front of you. It has all the books. You have the book of Isaiah. You have the the events of Isaiah. You have the dates of Isaiah. So we're looking at the narrative of the major and minor prophets. They're found in the latter half of the Old Testament. It's Isaiah through Malachi. It'll be most easily understood by quickly reviewing the chronological history of the books. And that's the dating. That's what you'll have on your handout. Um, I think because of time restraints, we're going to have to skip over this section. But it's important that you understand Ezra fits into the canon of Scripture. And it, it has a certain a, a dated event. These events took place at this time. The book was written at this time. And where it falls in, we have to think about that this is the group that came back from the from the captivity of the king of Babylon so just real quick, I'll just run through it. You have Isaiah. You have the dates there, 739, 681. Well, majority of scholarship puts Isaiah's birth at 759 B.C. That means that Isaiah was 20 years old when God commissioned him. We, I, I think of Old Testament prophets as like a guy with a beard and a, know, and a robe and he's like walking around or something. This is a young person. This is a young man. He's 20 years old. That's Isaiah. That, that section in Isaiah where he's commissioned, that's a 20-year-old kid, really. So among Isaiah's contemporaries were Amos, um, Hosea, Micah. Isaiah's text unveils the full dimension of the judgment of God, and he warns the people of Judah, Israel's southern kingdom. The kingdom of Israel was in the northern kingdom. Judah was in the southern kingdom. And he's warning them through that of the impending doom that they will face for their idolatry and lack of repentance. So then jumping to the book of Jeremiah, you have the dates. Jeremiah prophesied also in Judah during the reigns of Josiah and the succeeding kings up to the Babylonian exile. If you have any familiarity with Josiah, this is the reforming king, the reformation and to imagine that this, this guy lives through that. He sees that, but then he sees what happens after. And then he, he prophesies the destruction, and he knows they're not going to turn. So he knows what's going to happen. And he, he, that's, that's the book of Jeremiah, in a, not, not giving it its due credit. The book of Ezekiel, you have the dates, 593, 571. Ezekiel was among the more than 3,000 Jews exiled to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar in 597. So briefly to review, 588 to 586 is the siege. This is 597. So Nebuchadnezzar, he took this group of of people, up to 3,000 is what history records. Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem from Jehoiachin, the son and successor of Jehoiakim, and he took a number of Jewish prisoners back to the capital. Nebuchadnezzar left the puppet Zedekiah in ruling power, and Zedekiah was King de facto, he was like this puppet, he would pay tribute, he was not uh, a good king. So whatever was left of Judah, 597, approximately 10 years before the siege and destruction of Jerusalem, Zedekiah is there. Well, he eventually rebelled against the king of Babylon, and he brought the complete destruction of of Jerusalem to pass, which was prophesied by Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now, Ezekiel didn't live there because he was he was taken in that earlier time. Ten years before he lived among the Chaldeans, approximately a thousand miles from Jerusalem. And the people that lived there were the first recipients of the prophecies. So they were he was prophesying to his fellow exiles in Babylon. So they were there before he knows what's going to happen because the word the word of the Lord goes into Ezekiel And then imagine being there a thousand miles from Jerusalem. You're then now seeing you're hearing the reports of the destruction of Jerusalem. And as we as we talked about the leveling of everything, the public buildings were set on fire. Residences set on fire. The temple set on fire, the walls completely leveled, the complete annihilation. There is nothing there. He wiped it off. He wanted it to be like level ground. Done. It's over with. So Ezekiel's there, all this, you know, a thousand miles from Jerusalem. Then he sees the the rest of the exiles and he hears the reports. So then we come into Daniel. Daniel's dates are 605 to 536. Daniel lives through the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem. He's brought to the king's palace to serve. Daniel prophesies the many nations rise and fall. All the all the secular nations that come after including the final government of God's anointed one's eternal kingdom and millennial reign. And the book of Daniel, in some regards, is the Old Testament mirror to the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament regarding eschatology. So having said all of this, I could have just said the canonical context places Ezra after Daniel before first and second chronicles. But we're not talking about placement in the Bible. The order of the biblical text does not necessarily represent correct chronology or canonical context. You have the date of the writing, Daniel 535, Ezra 440, 1st, 2nd Chronicles 400. Even these dates are argued, they're debated, there's conjecture about it. They're not definitive. One guy can tell you a really good reason. The other guy can tell you another reason. Look at these dates as approximations. They happened Arguing over a plus or minus so many years and, oh, there's a contradiction here is a waste of time. It happened and it's recorded in the Bible. So what we need to think about with Ezra, if you read through the text, you're going to notice that there may seem like there are contradictions. So you have Artaxerxes telling them, no, stop building the temple. You have Darius saying, no, it's good. Go ahead, build the temple. You have Artaxerxes saying, yeah, you're good, Ezra. Go ahead and go back. Well, to Artaxerxes. Well, there's an Artaxerxes 1 and 2. Depending upon when 2 was born, he lived a certain time. And then you have some people saying Darius was all the same guy. It was Artaxerxes because that name is a common name that can refer to kings. So you, you can't look at Ezra's chronology. The, the chronicler is not in, imparting to you specific dates that are important. He's imparting to you themes. He wants you to learn from the, the themes that are in the book. That's what's important. And that you should have on your um, outline as well. We'll just briefly look at these. I just want to say these out loud. So you have God's sovereignty, God's providence, the captivity of Israel, the persecution and the opposition to rebuilding the temple. You have the faithfulness of the Lord. There's disobedience, although they have been warned again and again and again about taking foreign wives, and then that leads them to fall into pagan worship and idolatry. They're doing the same thing. They've had the destruction of the temple. They've lived in captivity for 70 years. They're back home. They've rebuilt the temple. And what are they doing? They all have foreign wives. They're, doing, they're going to fall into the same idolatry. But you have the repentance and you have the leadership of Ezra. And Ezra tells them what they need to do. And instead of rebelling against Ezra, they say, you're right. And they do it. So they listen to Ezra. Ezra is this model. He set his heart to learn what God's word said. He set his heart to do what God's word said. And he set his heart to teach the people around him. There's an implication that they already didn't know or he would not have set his heart to teach them. So when looking at the meaning, I just feel it's prudent to qualify the term meaning. Meaning is the content of a communication that a writer or speaker consciously willed to convey through the use of words or grammar. And it doesn't change based on your culture. It doesn't change based on your point of view. Because that's eisegesis. We're going to do exegesis. We're going to exegete the meaning out of the verse. Well, the meaning is is synonymous with authorial, uh, authorial intent. The author's intention for the text is what the meaning is. If there's no author's intention, there is no meaning. So the chronicler wrote these things down so that we know based on the grammar that he used in Hebrew, we can say that isn't what that means. What he used there, he decided to use, you know, he used the third feminine singular. He used a third masculine singular. He used this word. It, it's a it's a cow, uh, you know, uh, active participle. It's a it conveys the existence of of emphasis and, uh, you know, strengthens the force of the verb. No, no, he used a, a third masculine singular. It's a cow perfect. And what he meant to say was this. That's grammar. That's the reason it's important to know the inspired language so that you're not relying on a translation. Because to me, when I read to study the word of, of the Lord or to seek with care, the word of the Lord, I prefer the one that says to seek with care. Because it has to do with the person's heart, not the person's mind. And no one can argue, well, this verse means this to me. I don't care. That's not the meaning of the verse. The meaning of the verse is what the author, when he wrote it, all those thousands, of, when he wrote this, he wrote something down and he wanted to convey it to somebody else. And that's what it means. Outside of anybody else, no one can tell you it means this to me. It means what it means because this guy tried to write it down and he used words and he used grammar. And we know those fundamental, the way those uh, words fit together. There's a there's a lexical meaning. There's a syntactical relationship. And that is meaning. So scripture is to interpret scripture. And. I believe strongly in the analogy of faith principle which states just that scripture is to interpret scripture. No part of scripture can be interpreted in such a way that renders it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in scripture. So we have three units of thought that I now have five minutes to share with you. Um, But we have supporting scripture. There should not be anything in scripture that contradicts itself and you can't find it. So all of the supporting scriptures on your on your line are something that supports what Ezra is saying in seven ten. And there's the same doctrine, there's an expositional truth. So the first point is the need to learn the word of God. You can't follow directions if you don't read the directions. Scriptures God breathes. So when I said in my introduction that I was an atheist and that um, I ended up getting saved in a Bible study. I didn't get saved because I heard the gospel. I heard the gospel and I rejected the gospel. God saved me by using scripture. And one of the one of the ones he used was the the first on your supporting scripture for your first point, Second Timothy three sixteen seventeen. All scriptures God breathed. Or in the NASB, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God can be adequately equipped for every good work. So there is a need to learn the word of God. You can't follow what the word of God says if you don't first know what the word of you have to. There's a process. I'm not going to just run out and obey something. I got to first know what I'm being told to do. So looking at this point, it made me think of an old saying. And it goes that there's 18 inches between the mind and the heart. And in those 18 inches, some will miss the mark and they'll go to hell. So we can learn a lot about scripture and it doesn't do anything. And that's sad. That's an intellectual default. That's our human pride. So at the master's seminary, I was told a couple of disturbing stories about men who missed the mark because of their intellect These stories were uh, different, but they shared a common feature. They're especially disturbing because they're true. And the first was about a guy who graduated the seminary with a 4.0 GPA, and he achieved the highest honors at the graduation ceremony. This is the pinnacle of theology. He later left the ministry because of his arrogance and pride, and he left the pastorate. He no longer serves in the pastorate because his arrogance of head knowledge got him the way of his heart to serve other people. He didn't come as a servant. He came as a person that's going to tell, you know, he probably knew he, this guy's 4.0, the master's seminary, highest grade marks. He, but he was intellectually there, but he couldn't humble himself to serve other people. He doesn't serve. So <clears throat> the second is equally sad. But I found it terrifying, to be honest. This person was also very smart. They received top marks for their classes. Uh, This gentleman was an A student. He had a high GPA. He graduated the seminary. The second person does not only serve in the pastorate. He does not serve in the pastorate. But he has renounced his faith and he is now an atheist. This is a person that went through the same school I'm in. He sat under the same professor that i sat under i had the privilege of sitting under a professor that helped john macarthur write the commentary notes for the old testament and he relayed this story to us in class and it was emotional for him he knew this person personally and you just think well how does that happen well he had an intellectual understanding of the scripture but it had never changed him it had never penetrated his heart So that goes to the need to learn the word of God. You won't be changed if you don't know what it says. So the verse says that in that Ezra set his heart on studying the law of the Lord, not his mind. Intellectually speaking, it's it's possible to know a lot about the Bible and still have no salvation. And Paul writes about the benefits of this epistle to the churches in uh, Rome. And we have to ask ourselves when we read the Bible. Are we trying to attain head knowledge? Or are we setting our hearts on learning the law of God? One path leads to hell and one path leads to the kingdom of God. OK, so second point, the importance of living out the word of God. The most important reason to practice the word of God is because yours and others eternity is at stake. You, you can say in your mind, wait a minute, that sounds like preaching works based salvation and That's not what I'm saying. We'll let scripture validate itself. You can look at the passages you have there. We are not saved by works. We are saved by God's grace through faith. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Again, a verse that God used to save my life. For by grace, you're saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift from God, not the result of any works so that no one can boast. So does that mean we shouldn't be concerned with living out our faith or performing good works? Of course not. That's, we, we would listen to what the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ says on this subject. And we're basically out of time, so I'd like to be able to go to these verses. Please look at these verses on your own time. But 1 John 2 says that uh, the person that says they know him and they don't do what he says, that person is a liar. That's what Jesus Christ says about people that say they have salvation in him, but they don't follow what he teaches. That's a very serious thing. So another way to say it, if you love Jesus, then you will live out your convictions about the word just like Jesus did. Christ likeness is the goal. The good works we walk in demonstrate our Christ likeness. And Jesus gave some very strong warnings to those who claim to have saving faith, but do not demonstrate any adherence to the word of God. And we have the parable of the tree and its fruit. Matthew 7, 15 through uh, 23. Many people will come to me on that day, that day, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And they will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we heal people in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And Jesus tells them get away from me. You never knew me. You, you who practice lawlessness. So people that are fervent religious people that have done amazing works in the name of Jesus Christ, Christ tells them, you don't know me because you didn't. That's that to me illustrates a, a mind, not a heart. Their heart wasn't in it. There's an importance of living out the word of God it's not enough to set our hearts to learn the word of God. We must set our hearts on doing what the word of God says. And of course, we have James for that. James chapter one, verse 22. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers. Otherwise, you're only deceiving yourself. So real quick, lastly, the obligation to share the word of God. The third point, I think I think about the saying last but not least, this might be the most important. Point today, because it affects the people around us and their salvation. Ezra may have been a scribe and a priest, but does that mean that only spiritual leaders or pastors are to be the ones that share the word of God with with other people or with unbelievers? Surely not all the people in Israel were saved or Ezra would not have set his heart on teaching them. We are surrounded by people and not all of them are saved. So what are we going to do about it? Israel existed there and there was believers, but not all the people in Israel were saved or had a clear understanding of the law and statutes of God. It is the word of God that has the power to change. Hebrews 412. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. Whether they hear the gospel or whether they hear Ezra or whether they hear Genesis or whether they hear Revelation or whether they hear first Peter. It doesn't matter what they hear because the word of God is sharper than any two edged sword and it has the power to pierce the division of soul and spirit. That's what's going to change people's hearts is the word of God. So the third point is the obligation to share the word of God. And what was the command of our Lord to his disciples when he ascended into heaven? He said, go into all the world, to all people groups and make disciples of them. And then what? He says to teach them all that I have commanded you. He says, make disciples of them, baptize them, teach them. Very important here. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And another way to say it, when Paul wrote his letter to the churches of Rome, he touches on this subject. Paul questions this. How will anybody be saved if we don't share the gospel or the word of God? How will they hear if no one goes and tells them? How will they hear preaching if a preacher doesn't go and tell them? He's not saying you have to be a preacher to share the word of God. He's saying, how are people going to get saved if we as followers of Christ do not go out and then share the knowledge that we have? We have the Bible We have the Bible. We have the power to save because we have the word of God and the word of God has the power to save. So all we have to do is share what we have. We have the truth that can save a sinner from going to hell. It can change. I was the most hardened atheist that you will ever meet. I was an angry atheist. I knew all about cosmology. I was reading Stephen Hawking books. I could tell you about science and evolution. I was completely duped. I was the biggest fool there was in the world. But I could tell you about things. I could give you the, the just answer you with apologetic arguments. And it was nonsense. And I got saved because I heard three verses of scripture. I would make fun of people that were Christians. I thought you were an idiot if you believed in God. You must be the biggest dope there is. If you think there's a fairy tale that there's a sky God who who's going to save you. I was there's no way you could ever convince me. I heard three verses of scripture, three verses, and I had even heard some of it before. But you know what? In that day, at that time, through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the providence of God, those three verses in a in a certain order were exactly what it took. And it penetrated my heart so the person in your life that you think that that guy's hopeless that person's hopeless your family member your coworker your classmate i can't reach them they laugh at you when you share the word of god you 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 may not be able to save them you're going to plant a seed someone else already maybe planted a seed you're going to water the seed god has the power to make that seed grow But what you can do is you can share the word of God with somebody and then you leave it. You leave the results up to God and God will change people and he'll do it through his word. But how are they going to Paul is saying, how are they going to hear if no one goes and tells them the word of God has the power to change? And I recently heard someone ask this question. How bad do you have to hate someone to not share the gospel with them? How bad do you have to hate someone to not share the gospel with them? It's our obligation as regenerated, saved people to share the word of God with those around us. And I'm going to take mercy on you since we're late. I have some conclusion and application. Uh, You have the verses in front of you for the application and you have all the supporting scriptures. Um, Don't take my word for it. Search these scriptures out get convicted and all we can do is share the word of God with people, but be encouraged because a person like me, I mean, I can only imagine uh, the way some of you were even praying for me and, you know, I would come through the door and the the ushers were there and they would shake my hand and I would give them a dirty look or I would walk by and I would just kind of like hand out, like don't even look at them. You know, or like, why is this person touching me right now? And I sat back there for over four years. I thought Jeff, Pastor Jeff, was a con man. Just no way. Went to a Bible study, got challenged to memorize verses, memorized them, got saved. So please uh, look at Ezra 710. Sorry to keep you a little bit late. Happy New Year to all of you. And as we look at the new year, let's think about ways that we can apply what we've learned the need to learn the word of god uh, the importance of living out the word of god and the obligation to share the word of god so let's close in prayer heavenly father thank you for this time god thanks for teaching us today thanks for being with me as i spoke father i pray that that it's convicting that uh, we, can, we can make a change even the way we, we maybe turn off the TV or the video games and we set aside some time to read scripture and have a devotion time to you. Um, that we think about what we're saying. We think before we speak, we realize that uh, we as Christians, we live in a fishbowl. And that all the unbelievers around us are looking at us to see what we're going to do. So, God, as we think about the application for living out the word of God, let us let us just focus on our speech. How do we talk? How do we treat other people? And just please, God, give us the power to uh, not get frustrated and to treat other people the way we would want to be treated. And God, lastly, I pray for boldness. I pray that you take away any spirit of uh, timidity, that we are not timid, that we don't care about being embarrassed, that we're bold. And that we boldly profess uh, your son to others. Your scripture says that if we confess the Lord Jesus to others, that he will confess us to you. But God, that if you if we decide we don't want to confess uh, your son to others, that he will not confess us to you. So put us put us in a spot where we can minister to other people. We can share the word. Um, Just soften hearts as we go out into the new year. Uh, Let this year be a good one that we can see some some powerful change. Praying that you continue to work in this church. You do so much already. And we love you and we praise you for that. So please be with us as we travel today that we we go to lunch. We're with our family and friends celebrating the new year. And please be with us as we go out into our work week. uh, That we can have a good week and and be safe. And bring us back here next week to listen to another uh, sermon from Pastor. And just want to lift up Pastor Jeff and Lisa in prayer that you'll keep them safe as they travel and that you'll bring them back safely to us. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks a lot, guys. Happy New Year.